Hey everyone, I'm gonna do a little quick bio up top about my guest tonight, Chad Lewis. So, Chad Lewis is a researcher, author, and lecturer on topics of the strange and unusual. The more bizarre the legend is, the more likely you are to find him there. Chad has been featured on numerous TV shows, including Discovery Channel's A Haunting, William Shatner's Weird or What, ABC's Scariest Places, Monster and Mysteries in America, along with being a frequent contributor to Ripley's Believe It or Not Radio. With a master's degree in psychology, Chad has authored over 25 books on the supernatural and extensively lectures on fascinating findings. The more bizarre the legend is, like I said, the more likely you are to find Chad there. And now, our show. But Well, actually, before we go to the show, I just want to thank everyone for listening again. Uh, it really does mean a lot to me. I'm so pumped that people are actually like getting something out of this show and enjoying it. So thank you so much. And if you do like the show and feel like you want to do me a little bit of a favor, go ahead on Apple and Spotify and rate and review the show. It would really be helpful. I always thought it was one of those things where people just say that to say that, but I'm finding out it really does make a big difference. So if you had the chance, give that a go. Thank you so much, folks. And now here's the episode with the wonderful Chad Lewis. Do you think UFOs, the paranormal, weird history, cryptozoology, and outsider art are pretty darn cool? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to High Strangeness with your host, Steve Berg. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to High Strangeness. Tonight, my guest is the wonderful Chad Lewis. Chad, how are you doing, my friend? Greetings from the Northwoods of Wisconsin. <laughs> are you guys getting some fall weather there yet? Yes, it's uh, 60s and windy, perfect fall weather when darkness starts to beat out the light. Oh, man, I, to I, to I totally agree. I love autumn weather. It's just spooky. It feels like book even you know, reading books about UFOs and the paranormal, they just resonate even more in the autumn for some reason. Yes, I don't know how people in Southern California even get spooked by anything. It's just beautiful every day. But here in the Midwest, it's like when fall rolls around, it's time to, you know, put the windows on lock. That's true. I totally agree, man. That's my favorite thing about being back in the Midwest is uh, the seasons, especially autumn, because it is just scary. I'm sorry. It is. It just is. Go out to rural Nebraska, you know, in the middle of the night, and it's it's terrifying out there. In a great way. It really is. <laughs> and I think a lot of people who live in big cities forget how dark the countryside, if you go into the countryside, how dark it can really be. I do a lot of lectures where I'm driving back home late at night and I'm always taking the back roads and it's just dark. Yes. I, it's hard to even believe. Yeah. You can really just picture kind of some of those old like 1950s, 60s, like saucer landings and farmers like fields and stuff like that <laughs> you know it's just like it, i can totally imagine it and it's, it's just uh it's just so wonderful so everyone i met chad last year around this time in van meter iowa at the van meter visitor festival and first off i've known about chad's work for a long time he, you know chad's you know I, and as you heard in the bio he's been in a lot of tv shows he's written a ton of books he's a real go-to guy for you know high strangeness in the Midwest and all over the place, really. Um, but so right away, I was I drove there, you know, as early as I could and made it to Chad's walking tour 
of the van where the Van Meter visitor came in. It was it 1903, Chad? Yes, it was September of 1903 going into October for five nights. Five nights. Oh, I didn't realize it was five nights. Would you mind telling my listeners just a little bit about the Van Meter Visitor? Because it's such a wonderful, wonderful story. In 1903, Van Meter, Iowa, which is a small town of about 900 people, 20 miles from Des Moines, farm town, your typical small rural Iowa town, is all of a sudden terrorized by a giant nine-foot bat-like creature. And it really started out real subtle with a UFO sighting of a man coming home late at night, seeing a weird light on a, a building, thought it was an intruder or a bank robber, but then the thing disappeared and reappeared on the other side of the street on another building. And it only went more bizarre from there, where eventually people started seeing it and firing at it. Yeah. shooting with everything they had and it's releasing this strange odor it's taking away people's memories it seems impervious to weapons and then on the fifth night another one of these things shows up a smaller one town posse tries to fire it you know they can't kill it the bank manager shoots out the front window of the bank trying to hit it it's like chaos in small town van meter if you remember that movie Cowboys versus aliens from a few years back. Yes. Uh, that's what it was. It was exactly that. And then it uh, just went into an old abandoned coal mine. And that's where the story kind of left off. Yes. Like, we don't know if they killed it, if it's still there, if it flew off to become the Mothman of Point Pleasant. Right. I mean, it does kind of like, you know, have some of the same similarities as the flying humanoid encounters, especially like you just said, Mothman. I lo- what, you know, and first off, everyone, <laughs> We are the the Van Meter uh, Visitor Festival is happening September 30th, and Chad was nice enough to ask me to come and lecture at this year, which I am just over the moon, so excited about, very thrilled. But Chad offers these walking tours, and and, and it, it is one of the most impressive, exciting, and fun things you can possibly do if you're into this stuff because it is so detailed. You are literally walking where all this stuff happened. And Chad is pointing to you where the creature landed, where the, like he said, the the doctor shot at it or the banker shot at it. And it is just so fun. And you actually take, you walk through the town and you walk all the way from the town to the mine. So you get to see the whole like confluence of events come together. And it's just so fascinating. Uh, Chad, how long have you been doing that walking tour? Um, Almost 10 years now that the festival has been going. And what I love about it is the town of Van Meter is still very tiny. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Des Moines will swallow it up with all the suburbs. But right now, it's only a a couple blocks for the main downtown. And then you walk maybe three or four more blocks and you're out at the old abandoned coal mine. Right. Which today doesn't seem that far. But in 1903, it must have seen way on the outskirts of town Yes, that all this is going on. And you're right. You can actually, and I gave a very condensed version of the visitor story, but you can actually walk into the old bank. The vault's still there. It's now a law office, but the vault's still there. You can see the windows they would have shot out. You can see some of the areas where they blasted at this monster. And that's the beauty of it is it hasn't changed. It's I love the Mothman Festival, but a lot of the the festivals downtown where a lot of the activity was on the outskirts out by the TNT area. Totally. The, the bunkers out there. So this is a unique opportunity to, again, literally say, well, that's where they fired at it. 
Right, right, and and, and that is the thing. It, like, because I actually, you know, I've, I've been to the Mothman Festival and other, you know, fest, you know, smaller rural town festivals like this, and I love them all. But there is something very special about this one. I kind of feel the same way about uh, the Beaster Bray Road, which I will definitely ask you about later, because um, you know you get to actually be where these sightings happened, and to me that is so exciting. And you're right, it is in the town, so. That that is kind of a unique thing, and and Chad also I remember in the walking tour last year, you were kind of briefly mentioning that there is some other kind of high strangest encounters or incidents that have happened to Van Meter. Am I right about that? There were uh, quite a few uh, haunted stories of the downtown, some of the businesses and private homes. Running parallel to the town is a small little raccoon river, mm-hmm. and there were legends back then of a sea monster being in there. Oh, fantastic. So, again, you have all this what Keel, John Keel would have said, window areas. Yes. These portals where you're getting UFOs, you're getting monsters, you're getting sea serpents, hauntings, all sorts of weirdness in this small little area, which... For people like yourself and myself, only adds to the fun of it. Of course, of course. And you know, you know, I couldn't help thinking because last year was the first time I had ever been to Van Meter. But when I got off the interstate and was driving into the town, there is this like weird feeling where this town is kind of like off by itself. It's off. Like a lot of the small towns in the Midwest are kind of right off the freeway, you know. And this one, or the, or the interstate, I should say. But this town is just kind of off by itself there's like a this kind of like liminal feeling you gotta like drive into it and it's just tucked away it's like its own little world it's 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 lovely it's such a cute little town too well i say it's the perfect distance for you to get your nerves up and get your bravery going before you hit town from the interstate and it gives you kind of time to to get off of the interstate and forget about it and then all of a sudden you are in this little hamlet type area and you can you don't need a great imagination to see what it would have been like a hundred years ago. Right, right, right. I, yeah, you can tell like the town probably hasn't changed dramatically, but yeah, I mean, but it, it is quite a lovely, cute, clean little town. They can tell they have a, a lot of pride in the place. They do, and up until recently, they had a Hall of Fame uh, museum for a pitcher, a baseball pitcher that came from Van Meter, but that has since gone away and. You wouldn't really know that this was anything out of the ordinary until you hear the story. Again, you just pull in small little Iowa town, gas up, grab some snacks, and you're back on the road. But when you start digging deeper, it's one of the weirdest stories I've ever come across. Oh, I agree. It's so weird and so fantastical, and that makes it like I'm always uh, for the weirder the better. And Van Meter just kind of ticks all the boxes for me. I love talking about the visitor because so many people tell me their theories of what it was, what it was not. And I love hearing that. And I was doing a a show or something and someone told me that it feels like the five nights, they kind of really amp up every night, like the thing or beast, whatever it might've been, just kind of throwing out feelers on the first night. Right. You know, it was just a UFO sighting, a weird ball of light. And then the second night, it appears in the middle of downtown, and by the third night, it's shining lights all over. The fourth night, you know, it's almost trying to attack people. So it's almost as though it amps up every night, um, which I found very fascinating. Right, right. And, and that is interesting. Like, because, yeah, I, I remember reading, uh, gosh, the, in the original account, there, in like, on the fourth night, it was, is that when it was like on top of the bank, or it was, you know, in, it was like 
perched up somewhere downtown. It was wasn't it like shooting like some sort of rays out of its forehead? Yeah, it had this giant horn, and it was the fourth night. It was up on a uh, um, telephone pole, and someone shot at it. It seemed to be sleeping, and he shot at it, and it woke it up, and it flashed this bright light out of its horn at this guy, and then it released some sort of strange odor where by the time that odor hit the, the guy who fired at it, he said he couldn't remember anything the rest of the night. Like his memory was wiped wow. from that odor, and I don't know if it was... It was sort of like a skunk spraying for protection or if it was meant to actually wipe out memories of uh, possible witnesses. But whatever it was, uh, the thing started flying off to the old abandoned coal mine and it it started flying but not flapping his wings, almost like the wings were for show, which you will find in a lot of flying creature stories that they can fly with the wings just spread out, not flapping them, almost as though they say, well, we should need wings to fly, so let's put wings on, right. but we don't need them. It, and that is, oh God, I love those little weird details. And also, the um, the detail of the odor, that is a very common motif in High Strange Encounters, going back for years and years and years. And, you know, John, you know like you mentioned John Keel earlier, and he... And, you know, you pick up any John Keel book, and there's tons of cases where after people, you know, witness a, a creature or a monster or a UFO encounter or the occupants of UFOs, that there is oftentimes like a sulfur-type smell or like, you know, burning rubber or scorched oil. Like, I always wonder what that's about because it's kind of across the phenomenon, you know? And so much so that you could write a book about it like your previous guest Joshua Cutchin <laughs> did write a book about it yes. so uh, yeah there is just so fascinating when there's so many oddities to these legends and you have the smells you have some some aspects that are so bizarre they're almost meant to be so weird that nobody would believe them yes. i had a, a a story of a woman who was out at a haunted bridge um and the, it has a reputation of this woman who will throw you over the bridge if you park your car there. Wonderful. She murdered her children out there and the like. But the, her and her friends were leaving from this haunted place. And all of a sudden, they noticed what appeared to be a werewolf running next to their vehicle. Whoa. And this thing was huge, your typical Hollywood-like werewolf. She said it kept up with the vehicle, even though they were going about 60 miles per hour on this gravel road. But... She hesitated to tell me the last detail because she thought it would make it too unbelievable because she said the werewolf was wearing like a plaid sport jacket like a professor might wear with, you know, the elbow patches and the like. And she said, I didn't want to say that because you wouldn't take it seriously. But you get those kind of things where it's almost as though it's thrown in because who's going to believe that? Right. Right. And, you know, gosh, you are saying all the right things to me because <laughs> my favorite, if I had to like hone in on my favorite aspect of these stories, it is the absurd kind of self-negating quality about them to where like, we're going to show you this thing. It's so absurd, so surreal, so unreal that no one's going to believe you. Like, it's almost like, you know, like I'm going to show you this thing, but it's so weird. It makes you question whether you're experiencing this or not it doesn't follow like the hollywood narrative of like you know a galactic federation and kind of like that organized narrative that a lot of these you know mainstream stories have but the weird ones to me are the ones that really stick out for some reason 
Those are the ones that fascinate me the most. And I love all stories, but you might get a UFO story where it's just a ball of light and get 20, 30 of those. And they're great, but there's not a lot to them. But Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden you got a werewolf wearing a sports coat. Well, that got my attention. Absolutely. No, is that, um, where did that happen? If you, can you share any more details about that? Yeah, it's on a, a, a bridge in Iowa, and it's a, I did a dare on on the bridge, and the woman was thought to have chucked her children over to an oncoming train, and it's right outside of Terra, Iowa, which is a small town outside of Fort Dodge, okay. and it's called Terra Bridge, but the locals, they call it Terror Bridge <laughs> because of so much weirdness taking place out there, and it's, again, a tiny little town. If you find this place, this bridge, you deserve, you know, a job with GPS because it's so difficult to locate. But yeah, that's where most people go out there just for the haunting. They're never expecting to see a werewolf. Whoa, I am going to try to find this bridge, let me tell you. <laughs> and it's funny, you know, there I mean even in Nebraska, we have a bridge called Witch's Bridge, which I actually just spoke with someone 2 days ago who was out there. And like many people report, she's like, we went out there with some friends when we were in college and, you know, just kind of like for kicks, you know, at night. And they said they were driving on the bridge and halfway when they were across the bridge, their car just shut down like completely. It wouldn't start for like five minutes. And that's what what people report on this bridge. And there's, you know, obviously like bridges symbolically are kind of like these liminal places where, you know, you're, you're going from one side to another and it seems like liminality is one of these motifs that are very common in in where people experience these things. Bridges, you can't throw a rock without hitting a bridge that has some sort of supernatural legend tied to it. Totally. And yes, I get it that you know they're connecting water with land, much like they're connecting the spirit world with our world. But it wouldn't explain a lot of the mechanical problems people have, like you said. Yes. So many of these bridges, people will go out there and the cars will, batteries will die. They'll need to be towed out of there. Perfectly working vehicles all of a sudden stop. I've had places where you go over the bridge and all of a sudden the road's longer or shorter than it should have been on the way in versus the way out. So bridges, it just seems like every darn bridge has some weirdness going with it. Right. And even just going back like to stories and fairy culture and even just like, you know, kind of the Scandinavian, you know, I was lucky enough to go to Norway as a kid and the whole trolls under bridge motif was everywhere there. And, you know, like uh, it's just these kinds of stories go back so long. There's there's just something to bridges. I'm convinced of it. Yes, I am too. And it brings in both bridges and water, which we all know water has a huge significance in the folklore of uh, early peoples here, non-indigenous peoples that came here. They brought their legends with them and they settled near the water and the water had great importance to them. So when you combine the water with the bridges, makes for the perfect paranormal setting and i you can find these even if you don't if you're traveling through a town in the middle of nowhere on the outskirts and you're not sure if a legend is around if you see a bridge full of graffiti and spray paint 
it has a legend attached to it <laughs> because kids are out there uh, spray painting it. You're absolutely right. And, and even in Nebraska, I can think of there's Witch's Bridge. There's another bridge on Western Nebraska. And I cannot remember the name of it right now, but it's got the same sort of legend. And I, I think you're right. Not only does every state have this, every like town or every county in America probably has a bridge legend. And it makes sense, especially in small towns where we think of kids saying there's nothing to do here. We're so bored. They want to get away from the prying eyes of law enforcement or their parents. So what do you do? You meet out on a bridge because it's in the middle of nowhere. Everyone knows where it is and you can have fun out there. And then legends seem to appear. Yeah. You know, it's in that you are absolutely right. And I kind of wonder sometimes, and this is me just total speculation here, but, um, Sometimes I'm what I wonder if like the folklore and you know how we you know think of bridges being these places where weird stuff happens is if we're like kind of co-creating what's happening by our like you know intention of hoping to see something you know like sometimes I I almost think we can enchant certain places <laughs> like as human beings um, I truly believe that if somebody believes that something's going to happen at a location and they go out searching for it, they're much more likely to have it happen. Yeah. Whether they're promoting it or projecting it or uh, imagining it or if they're opening themselves up to experience it. Mm-hmm. But that brings us into the whole Tulpa thought belief yep. form that if enough people believe there's a giant anteater under the bridge, like the Tuttle Bottoms monster in Illinois, that maybe it does become that there's a small uh, bridge with a huge anteater-like creature underneath it. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's, yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I sometimes I even think of like, is Bigfoot just this like kind of like Western culture, like uh, egregore that we've all created, you know, like uh, almost like this like folk hero that we've made real, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's wonderful. Cause I mean, like now I feel like, you know, when you drive in Nebraska, there's stickers of people have like Bigfoot stickers. They have like little, you know, Bigfoot ornaments in their yard. That was not the way when I was, it was when I was a kid growing up in the nineties, you know, like it seems like Bigfoot is really now become this like American folk hero. I can't believe how Bigfoot has exploded. Yeah. Yes. It was big in the 1970s when it received a lot of attention, but the last 10 years, I would not have predicted that Bigfoot would be ubiquitous in America. Right. Like you said, bumper stickers, hats, and people that aren't necessarily interested in researching it just love it. Yeah. They'll put a big cutout Bigfoot in their yard. Yeah. It really has become that that modern, I don't know, uh, uh, spokesperson for America or the <laughs> team mascot for America, if you will. Uh, you're, you're, you're so right. I mean, like so much so where, you know, people, you know, I think a lot of people who haven't looked into these topics, like, you know, as deeply as maybe we have, uh, they would never consider a place like Nebraska or Iowa to have a Bigfoot. I think a lot of people, you know, just kind of assume, well, Bigfoot's, you know, kind of a Pacific Northwest into Canada thing. But Nebraska has had quite a few sightings and still is today. There's even a Bigfoot museum in Hastings, Nebraska. I mean, like this, you know, it's just it's a great time for uh, cryptids. And it's not just rural sightings where you need this huge swath of public or private land, this forested area. There was a famous report from Rochester, Minnesota, of a woman seeing it on a road. And if in 
any of your listeners don't know, Rochester, Minnesota is where the Mayo Clinic is. Yeah. That's their big headquarters. So it's not a rural town at all. Yet she spotted something coming home from work, a Bigfoot on the side of the road. So oftentimes we think of these things being in the most far flung places, which they are. Sure. But they also happen in places you would never expect. Yep. Yep. There's almost kind of like this, like, you know, even in, even in like in Oma, you know, like I, I uh, talked to a lady who took, you know, she was a, actually, she was the secretary of this like little, it's not a state park. It's called Fontenelle Forest, which is like right outside of Omaha. And Omaha is, you know, a city of about a million people, but right outside of Omaha in Bellevue, Nebraska, this woman said this man came in you know who had been this this you know ex-lawyer who was a bird photographer had been coming there taking photographs of birds for 25 years this man reported seeing an eight foot tall creature covered in fur holding a log down by the missouri river and the man was like so shooken up and he said he would never come back there ever again and he hasn't (laughs) so (laughs) he was so troubled and this just happened a year ago so. And that's another thing of these these big cities. Oftentimes, they get very rural very quickly too. Mm-hmm. That even though you might be in a huge metro area, if you just go ten miles, fifteen miles outside the the area, it changes quite quickly for a lot of uh, of America. You're right. You're right. Especially in the Midwest, you can have these like big cities, and then it's like you said, step five miles outside the city line, you're like in com- cornfields. <laughs> yeah. It's quite wonderful. So, Chad, I kind of wanted to ask you, and I'm so sorry for asking you such a kind of boring vanilla question, but I truly, it is very interesting to me that, um, I, I, how did you get into this stuff? Like, you know, were you just kind of a kid who was always fascinated with this stuff? Did you have an experience? But like, you you are, you know, a real figure in the uh, uh, Fortiana, High Strange, Paranormal, whatever you want to call it world. Like, you know, you are... You've been on a lot of TV shows. You've written so many wonderful books. Like, how did you get into this stuff and want to make these studies your life and your career? When I grew up, it was never that you would do this for a living. Nobody did that. Mm -hmm. It was unheard of. You might be interested in it, but it was not like it is today. So I blame my interest in my home state of Wisconsin because... I grew up one near one of the three UFO capitals of the world that Wisconsin claims to have. Which one? So I grew up near Elmwood. I grew up in a town called Eau Claire, which is nicknamed Sawdust City because of all the lumber industries we had back in the uh, lumberjack eras. And so I would hear in high school of people seeing UFOs in Elmwood. And I went there to interview people and see what they were seeing, try to make out any sense of these sightings. And then I joined the mutual UFO network and it so happened that I started studying psychology that fall at college. And that's what I was really interested in Mm -hmm. why some people believe in all this stuff and others do not. And I was really focused on human perception and belief systems, but I would present my findings at research symposiums during college and people would come up and say, I need help. My home's haunted. Or I saw some creature in the woods I can't explain. Can you help me? Right. So it really went through graduate school. I ended up doing my master's thesis on students' belief in the paranormal. And it just kind of blossomed or spiraled from there. Wow. That's, I mean, that psychology degree in studying, like, 
this goes so hand in hand. Like, what a wonderful perspective to take into this stuff. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Please, please go on. No, no, I was interested in all of it. But back then, again, you're too young for this, but us old timers, it was very, uh, you were in your lane where you were interested in UFOs, but you would not talk to Bigfoot people mm -hmm. or uh, crop circles or you're, oh, you're the haunted person. That can't be related to what I'm doing with cryptozoology. And I remember when I was getting into this, I picked up Jerome Clark's Unexplained book. Oh, great book. This yeah, this might have been 92 or I think it came out in 93. But I remember if you're not familiar with the book, listeners, it was one of those where you could read about fairies on one page, monsters on the next, UFOs, strange falls from the sky, crop circles. And it really opened my eyes that you could do all this, that you could research it all. You didn't have to pigeonhole yourself into one discipline that you could enjoy all of it. And luckily over the years, I've been able to befriend uh, Jerry Clark. And uh, it was great for me just to tell him what an influence that book had on me. Because again, that was when there weren't a lot of TV shows. Like today you ask people what got them interested, what they love about the field. And they usually name a couple of their favorite TV shows or their favorite TV uh, personalities. But Back in my day in the 90s, it was what book got you started? You know, right. what really inspired you? And for me, it was that unexplained. And uh, otherwise, I'd probably still just be doing UFOs. Right. Well, you know, and that, that, that you know, gosh, that you're so right. That book is, I'm actually staring at it on my bookshelf. And it is one of those books that, like, I cannot recommend enough. Because, like you said, it is kind of like just an amalgamation of weirdness you know of all all kinds of stuff and chad let me tell you first off you're my kind of guy you're an all-purpose weirdo like I, i'm the same way <laughs> we're like i think growing up i was really focused on ufos i read about all the stuff but at a certain point i start you start it's hard to ignore the connections in the parallels between all this kind of high strange stuff to me and, and i and th look i have no evidence to back this up really but I do think there is some connection with all this stuff. And I, and I it would even kind of go back to Stan Gordon's, you know, wonderful work he's done in, you know, the state of Pennsylvania where he has all these, you know, Bigfoot and UFO encounters where people are seeing landed saucers and then Bigfoot creatures. And, w you know, when you start combining the weirdness together, oh, it's just so wonderful. <laughs> I believe that anyone who has done this for a very long time will certainly come to the conclusion that if they're not dismissing other aspects of the paranormal, that it's somehow related. Mm -hmm. And just because I don't understand it or we don't understand it doesn't mean it, it isn't. Right. But everyone that I've spoken with that has been in the field for quite some time, you know, they kind of drift to the idea that there has to be something more than just a single sighting or that these things aren't somehow related. And again, for me, just because I, I don't know what that relation is, I don't know how they're interconnected, but I truly believe that they, they are. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's what a lot of people will come to after study, if they study the broad spectrum, right? Again, if you're just studying Bigfoot and you're getting rid of any Bigfoot that have UFO sightings accompanying it, it's easy to just kind of stay focused on that one little area. But if you're like us, where the entire world is weird, yep. 
then I think you'll inevitably come to that conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, obviously, you know, for me, I think the, you know, for a long time, I did want to think that these things were separate as like when I was younger, I tried to read a John Keel book. I think it was Operation Trojan Horse. And I didn't like it at the time when I was young because it, it wasn't what I wanted UFOs to be. <laughs> you know, mm. I wanted a much simpler answer when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, now as an adult, you know, the Keel's work are like, you know, some of the most important books I have in my library. And I've read them multiple times. And it's really, he makes a very good case for his kind of idea of the super spectrum. I mean, you can call it whatever you want, you know, like Jacques Vallée would call it Magonia, you know, but like, you know, there's different names for it and different ways to think about it, but they're all kind of talking about the same thing that there is, um, you know, who knows what the machinations of it are, but that th these phenomena, that these displays of weirdness that we see are perhaps all connected. And I, I find that just so fascinating and fun. Another thing that's changed too, uh, sticking with this, is that years ago, if somebody had an experience with other people, let's say they saw a UFO in a car full of people, that when they all wrote their stories and their experience down, if it did not match one another completely, skeptics would say, that's just not credible. Mm -hmm. Here you have four people, they're all seeing and experiencing something different. They're making it up. Obviously, it's a hallucination or a downright hoax, but... Today, now, I see that almost as being more credible once we understand how different people perceive different things right. that you wouldn't expect four people to see the same exact thing. Maybe it's projecting itself different to each one, or they're certainly, uh, they're perceiving it different. So that's another uh, weird twist that years ago, it was thought to be very uncredible if people had differing uh, stories, but now... Uh, it's, it makes total sense. It, it, you're 100% right. I mean, even just for an example, like, you know, the uh, the reports of like, you know, weird Bigfoot occurrences, not just people seeing a Bigfoot creature, which is obviously strange enough, but the kind of like almost similarities between like a UFO encounter. I always think of uh, the wonderful UFO researcher, Jenny Randalls, who came up with that term, the Oz, the Oz factor. The Oz factor, which is kind of like, if my listeners don't know, it's a... Uh, it's this idea of like when you experience like, you know, the occupants of a UFO or a Bigfoot encounter or even like, you know, a ghostly apparition that there is this change in atmosphere. There's like a weird smell, like sound, you almost like you step into this bubble of unreality. And that is a common motif with a lot of these high strange encounters, which is just another, you know, kind of like, I don't want to call it a piece of evidence, but like a motif that I think we should be paying attention to that like look look there's a lot of similar emotional feelings when people experience this stuff and it's not always just fear so I find that really interesting I'm fascinated by fear as well because so many witnesses will tell me that it's almost as though when this counter encounter occurred it's as though they stepped into a zone of fear if you will yeah. that not the fear if you're out hiking and you see a black bear or a moose which can be kind of scary obviously but it's almost, uh, I better leave or this thing's going to harm me. Yeah. Even though many of the witnesses are in the perceived safety of their vehicle, they could take off as fast as they wanted and be home, you would think. But they get that overwhelming sense that if I don't leave, I'm in physical harm. Yes. 
And that's just another fascinating uh, aspect of why that happens. Right, right. Oh, it's so it's so wonderful. Um, so Chad, you know, like this summer or actually this spring, I had the wonderful opportunity to. Uh, my friend Eric Jeske is from Delavan, Wisconsin, very close. You know, he grew up like miles away from where the Beast of Bray Road took place. And uh, first off, it was just one. I, I find that area just so damn pretty. I mean, Wisconsin's a gorgeous state. But if you look at like a lot of the states in the entire country, I would venture to guess that Wisconsin has to be one of the top three weirdest states in terms of like just, you know, the variety and the amount of strange encounters. What What is the deal with Wisconsin? Like, do you have any kind of like, I know there's like the, the glacial, the glaciation, uh, gosh, I'm probably not going to do it justice, but there was like, you know, a glaciation like in the Southern Wisconsin. And I also heard that there's more uh, mounds, like, you know, indigenous people mounds than any other state. But Wisconsin really just has so much weirdness. And do you, do you have any thoughts on why? Like, obviously, you, no one knows for sure, but I'm sure you, you know, you speculated a little bit. Well, you touched on a couple things. We have the driftless area, this yep. area that the glaciers just decided, ah, we don't want to touch that area. Let's leave it be. Uh, we also have effigy mounds of the native peoples, the indigenous people that were here that would put these mounds, sacred burial grounds, often raised up in the shape of an animal, mm-hmm. which could best be viewed from the sky. Yeah. Amazingly, because nobody was flying back then. And we used to have about 20,000 of those in Wisconsin. And due to development and agriculture and the like, we're down to about 3,000, which are now all protected as sacred areas. But we have that. We have a a lot of variety from cornfields and prairies to the heavily forested Northwoods. But I'm often interested in the idea that we also, something about the Midwest and especially Wisconsin, where people might feel more comfortable coming forward with their story not thinking people will think they're crazy. So other parts that might not get as many stories, but part of it too, is that we have a lot of researchers here collecting these stories and making them known. Right. Whereas let's say Nebraska, you might have a lot of stories, but nobody's there uh, collecting them outside of uh, you and some other folks. <laughs> it's <is> very true. <laughs> you know, so it, it might be that we just have collected more of these, but yeah, there is something. We have a lot of water. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of lakes. We have more lakes than Minnesota, which is the land of 10,000 lakes, mainly because we classify them different than they do. Right. If they used our same schedule, they'd have a lot more lakes than us. But anyway, so we have a lot of water. We have a lot of farmland. We have rural. It just all seems to be this perfect melting pot for strangeness because you're right. We have you know, crop circle stories. We have werewolves. We have vampires, haunted areas. We have serial killers. You name it, you'll get it in Wisconsin. <laughs> you're you're right. I mean, like I've, I mean, you know, I, I wanted to go to Baraboo just to go visit like the circus museum or the, you know, like and and it's that that town is just weird, man. Isn't it? You know, and it's right by Devil's Lake, where you know Devil's Lake obviously has like a ton of lore going back to like ritual magicians, you know, practicing like going out there to perform rituals, and uh, you know, like the sea serpent of um, Devil's Lake and just the sea serpents in, ge- in general. I, I, you know, your wonderful book, um, The Wisconsin Roads. R- First off, folks, I highly recommend 
the Wisconsin Road Guide to Mysterious Creatures. It is, it's a, if you're in Wisconsin, this is the book you want to have with you. Like it, it will just, it will give you a really good roadmap of where to go and what to see. But you have like, gosh, a few different stories of lake monsters in Wisconsin. So it's like, I I can't think of a state that has more lake monsters either. (laughs) You're absolutely correct. As of today, I've collected over 40 different rivers, lakes, and streams in Wisconsin that have had or believe they still have a sea monster in them. Oh, my Lord. In fact, in the 1800s, if you were a resort town here in Wisconsin and you did not have a story of a lake monster, you were behind the times (laughs) because it was said you would lose out on Chicago tourists coming up where they wanted a lake monster story. So. Here in the U.S., there are, seems to be more lake monster stories here, even though we don't have the most lakes, than anywhere else. And they run anywhere from giant Loch Ness monster type circuit, uh, uh, creatures or serpents to more of your long eel-like, a 40-foot giant eel-like creature. And again, that might be people are just seeing them at different angles or different times or they're different type creatures. So... Yeah, we have a, a ton of lake monsters. We even have one in Lake Pepin, which is on the Mississippi River, dividing Wisconsin and Minnesota, called Peppy. And this one's so infamous, there's a $50,000 reward offered for its capture oh. if anyone can prove its existence, which, as of today, knock on wood, nobody has collected that reward. <laughs> That's incredible. I love it. That's so fascinating. And talk about, I mean, like, you know, other weird lake stuff. One of my favorite uh, Wisconsin stories is of the Lake Delavan giants that they found. Yes, and Lake Delavan, and Delavan is near Elkhorn, where the Beast of Bray Road Mm -hmm. originated. And Delavan's also one of the mini circus capitals of the world Wisconsin has as well, where uh, Barnum and Bailey Circus got their start. Yep. Um, And there, yeah, there's just weird... uh, giants that have been found all over Wisconsin. And some of the old newspaper accounts will call them, you know, prehistoric men, which is indigenous people back then. Mm -hmm. And they would be the skeleton they'd say was nine feet or 10 feet or even bigger that they simply dug out of the ground. And what happened to a lot of these, we have no idea, but we thought that they were put on display back then at a local dime museum or the guy who ran the hardware store would put them up in the store where you could go for a nickel or a dime to go see them. Wow. And then what happened after that? No idea. But yeah, these giants or at least skeletal evidence of them seems to be everywhere. Yeah. And in the late Delavan story, and correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't that original article about it? And it was, gosh, over a hundred years ago where they found this, but wasn't that in the New York times? Yeah. A lot of the, the outside newspapers, carried the the weird stories where New York Times was notorious for doing this. If there was a a, a weird legend that was brewing, they would simply write a story about it, which made good press back then because these stories back in the 1800s were just as popular and enticing for people as they are today. So newspapers, which back then took a little more liberty in some of their articles, Mm -hmm. would often fashion stories off of stuff that was happening throughout the the entire country. And I, I say it, it's interesting because I've done several books on old newspaper stories of the strange and unusual. And one thing I found interesting is sometimes you would find a case that was said to have happened in one town, 
but it was covered in another town and not the original town. Interesting. And it'd be vice versa. So I often wondered if these stories actually happened or if it was a, just a slow news day in 1895 and they made up the story knowing that nobody would Google it back then right. to find out what was going on. Because I have so many of these stories that weird things were said to have happened in a town, but the town's actual newspaper never covered it. Right, right. And I think I think you're definitely, I think it's a combination of all the above. Because, I mean, you know, there was a, in the early 20th century, there was a lake monster hoax that kind of caught national attention in Western Nebraska. But it was definitely a guy who was kind of a known con man who was, you know, perpetuating the story. Still, I love it. I love just, I mean, like, I know some researchers get mad at like hoaxes and stuff like that. And obviously I, no one likes to be fooled, but like, I think sometimes the idea, and there's even like examples, which I can't think of right now, but where people hoax things. Like I, I even know where uh, uh, Andrew Collins work in crop circles in England, where there were people who were hoaxing some of these crop circles, right? And they would actually experience weird stuff as they were hoaxing it. They would be out in the fields in the middle of the night and all of a sudden, like, they would literally be smashing down the wheat fields, but then they'd see balls of light. And they're like, whoa, wait. <laughs> you know? So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's almost like by the act of hoaxing something, you know, like you're attracting weirdness. And I, I find that interesting as well. And people in the old days, they knew of hoaxes. They knew of the Fiji mermaid and the Cardiff giant yep. and the hodag. So they were familiar and they loved the legends. And uh, like you said, uh, with crop circles here in the Midwest, there were a few crop circles that I went to investigate where after they appeared, hoaxers made another one nearby, almost like a copycat effect. Mm -hmm. But you're right that they would often report weird things. And again, it brings it back to that. If you go there and you start practicing weird things, will weird things happen? Uh, if you build it, they will come, Chad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, okay, so since we're talking about Wisconsin, I, I have to bring up maybe my favorite UFO case ever, and that is the Joe Symington Space Pancakes case. Would you mind, I'm, you know, because I know you wrote about it so wonderfully in your book, would you mind giving my listeners a little, a little taste of that encounter? Back in the 1960s, Joe Simonton lives in this little town called Eagle River. He's a plumber and part-time farmer, lives out in the country on his own. His wife is estranged from him, and he's your stereotypical farmer. Uh, you wouldn't think him to be prone to flights of fancy or making things up, kind of that no-nonsense farmer, salt-of-the-earth type guy. And he's having a, a late breakfast one morning when he looks out his window and he sees as 30-foot-wide, 10-foot-high craft descend into his yard. And it's hovering there in his yard. And Simonton, who had never given much thought to UFOs, he wasn't scared. He was intrigued. So much to his credit, he walks out to this thing. And as he walks out, an entrance appears on the craft. He said, like, the trunk of your car opening up. And he sees this weird figure coming to the front of the craft. And he saw two more beings inside. They were all identical. Said they were all very short. They were dressed odd. They had dark eyes, dark skin, dark hair. He said they reminded him of very small Italian men moving about. <laughs> and the, the leader, the presumed leader, is holding a container of some sort of jug. And without any verbal communication, Simonton realizes they wanted water from him. So 
He goes to his house and pumps some water and brings it back. And as he does, he looks inside this craft. And one of these things, the human, the alien, the pilot, whatever it was, was cooking something over a flameless type grill. So Simonton gives him the water and he kind of motions with his hand like eating, trying to get some communication going. Like, are you going to eat whatever that guy's cooking? So the leader recognizes Simonton's interest, goes over and trades Simonton for the water, giving him a couple what the newspapers called alien pancakes or saucer cakes for trade. And then all of a sudden the craft shut the door. You couldn't even see it was there and it flew off. (laughs) Simonton had no idea, but other people in the area were seeing that UFO. They were calling the local law enforcement, but Simonton ate one of those pancakes and said it was the worst tasting pancake he'd ever had. He said, (laughs) pardon me. He jokingly said, no wonder they're so small. This is what they're eating. You know, I feel bad for them. So the key part, and we can get into Project Blue Book coming to Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. but the key part is Simonton just went about his day. He told a couple close friends, but he didn't want it known. But he was having dinner at a local restaurant telling the story to his friend. And lo and behold, a weird synchronicity, the local town newspaper reporter sitting in the booth behind him, listening to the story and says, I want to publish this story. And once the story got out in the first week, over a thousand people showed up on his farm looking for those alien pancakes. So much so that Dr. J. Allen Hynek and two grad students from Illinois came up and interviewed Simonton and checked out the farm. They were fascinated. They sent off one of the pancakes for analysis. And it was just one of the weirdest stories you'll ever come across. Yeah. Yeah. It's got everything I love in a in a four, in a 40 in UFO encounter. I mean, and also, yeah, you know, it also, you know, like, you know, wonderful author like Josh Cushion has pointed out all the, you know, kind of similarities between like that encounter and like an old fairy encounter with the food being given and, you know, just it's so unusual and fantastic. And Chad, I did not know that the reporter was sitting behind Joe in a restaurant. I had no, that's a new, that's a new piece of the puzzle for me. That's fantastic. Cause Simonton wished he never would have reported it or it never got out because he lost business. People didn't want to hire the plumber that was seeing UFOs and eating alien pancakes. So he started selling this little pamphlet, which I've never seen in real life. I've seen it online, which just told his story. And he'd sell it to any legend trippers or curious sight seekers that would come to his farm to help offset his loss of income. And Dr. Hynek and the crew that came, they believed Simonton, but they thought he was uh, having a waking dream. Right. They thought he had gone kind of stir-crit. They never said this publicly. Again, this was the 1960s. They're not going to ruin someone's reputation. But behind the scenes, they thought he had imagined the whole thing. But they thought he was a credible witness. They thought he truly believed it had happened to him. He stuck with his story till the day he died. There's been a lot of talk about he actually had other encounters later, but he didn't talk about them because of all the the negative feedback he received from the pancake swapping and the pancake that was uh, sent for analysis. It was thought to be nothing more than your traditional buckwheat pancake, except for the fact that some reports said it was missing any salt in it, Mm -hmm. 
which again, going back to fairy lore yep. and folklore, salt plays a huge role in folklore. So that kind of catches every folklorist eye when there was no salt in there. But Big time. yeah, to the day he died, he believed he had encountered something not of this world. And unfortunately, by the time I started researching the case, Simonton had already passed on, but I was able to speak to some of his friends and family really? who had some great insight into what he had spotted. And once the book came out, I put it in my Mysterious Creatures book of Wisconsin. And once that book came out, um, someone contacted me. They had their own story of playing in their yard near Simonton's farm when they were a kid with their buddy and their mother. And they saw a UFO flying over towards Simonton's farm when it happened. And he had not thought about it in a long time, but he contacted me to tell me a story because he wanted it down on paper. So I was able to put that in the next edition of the book. And that's one of my favorite things about writing these stories is that it gets out there and then more witnesses come forward. So here was someone who had seen the UFO passing by Simonton's farm, adding some more credibility to this whole pancake saucer scenario. That is absolutely amazing. And see, that's the wonderful thing when you write, when you write about this stuff. Well, maybe not necessarily the story is over because you're putting the story out there and then people feel like, oh, well, now I can get, in. I mean, that's so wonderful. So like you, you is, is, is that fairly, happen to you fairly often where you'll write about an, an account and then you'll get kind of some follow-up details from other people? It happens quite often. And on the flip side, it happens quite often that when you write about a legend without doubt, one or... Several dozen people come forward claiming that they created that legend. It right. was their hoax. Right. Um, I did a book, as I mentioned, The Peppy Monster from Lake Pepin with the $50,000 reward. I did a book about this legend, and a woman contacted me and said, oh, I made that legend up in the 1980s with my husband. We started circulating reports of a lake monster in the lake to try to you know, have a little fun, a little ruse. <laughs> and I said, well, you may have made up a story about it, but- we have written accounts dating back to the Civil War of this thing happening and indigenous accounts much farther back or further back into history. So oftentimes people believe that because they made up one story about a legend that they made up the entire legend. And usually it's just false that these stories have been happening long before this person decided to add their two cents in. Right. So that happens as well. I can't think of a, a major case that I've uh, worked on a major legend where someone hasn't come forward and said, oh yeah, that's because of me. <laughs> oh man, that's so interesting. And I didn't, I don't think I, you know, I think I'd forgot, and I think you wrote about this in your book, but uh, I think I forgot that Joe, you, you mentioned that Joe had other, other experiences. Joe Simon. Yes. Yep. Um, some of the, the local people that knew him said he would often talk about to personal friends and people he trusted uh, possible other encounters after this, wow. but he made no mention of them. He wanted nothing to do with the, the field. And that's very common mm. with a lot of people who have experiences that today you'd say they go viral, uh, that got a lot of attention. They wish they never would have spoke about it at all. Yeah. And I think a lot of times we place a lot of pressure on witnesses to explain away a lot of these things. There's a, 
a famous case up in northern Minnesota called the Warren UFO car, where this uh, law officer was struck by a UFO, missing time. He had burn marks on his eyes, and they have the car on display at the local museum. And it made huge news uh, back then in in the 1970s. But a colleague of mine just talked to the police officer, Val Johnson, and, you know, asked him 40 years, 30 years, whatever later, what his thoughts were. And we, we placed too much, I think, emphasis on that the, the witness is going to know anything more than they did back then. Right. I mean, we don't know anything or I don't know anything about these legends. For sure. I don't have any answers. So why would I expect these witnesses to have answers? Yeah. Um, you know, most of them just stick to their story of, I have no idea what happened to me. Right. Right. And and some of you just mentioned too, like, you know, Joe Simonton, how he regretted it. It reminds me of uh, one of my favorite local cases, which is a Herbert Shermer, another police officer who had a dramatic UFO encounter with beings on the craft, but it ruined his life. I mean, he was literally run out of the town of Ashland, Nebraska. I mean, like they, the, the church was hanging effigies of him, and he had to, the poor man had to change his name. And he was like, he was like a really, like everyone loved him. Uh, you know, he was like a young, like, you know, war hero. And after he came out and went public with his encounter, this guy became a complete heretic of the town and had to, you know, I, I spoke, I was able to speak with his two younger brothers and they said, look, to his dying day, he, you know, claimed that what he saw was real and it totally ruined his life. The poor man changed his name, had to leave Nebraska. And it was just kind of like, like you said with Joe, he wished he had never opened his mouth. Yeah, because it becomes one thing that happens to someone and it takes over their entire life. And the the questions never seem to end that 40 years later, people, media will be contacting this person and it's a defining moment in their lives, but not by their choice. So oftentimes they want to, I've tried to um, interview witnesses from a long time ago uh, just to see what they feel like's happening today. And they said, I don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't hate it. I, I don't think there's just nothing to add. It was just something that happened. I've moved on with my life. Yeah. There's nothing more to say. You know, I just don't want to talk about it anymore. And that's always uh, for me. I can always um, uh, feel what they're 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 feeling because I wouldn't want people harassing me about it either. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And and I it is one of these things where I feel like if you are investing in this stuff, that is, you have to draw the line somewhere. And if these people do not want to talk about it, like you have to respect that. There is, you know, there's a couple, <clears throat> you know, uh, witnesses and experiencers in Nebraska that I've kind of approached, and I could tell pretty quickly that like they just didn't want to speak about it anymore. And I, I, you know, immediately back off. I'm like, you know, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I will not bother you again. But yeah, you have to really feel sorry for some of these people to where like they didn't mean it to change their life. Probably like, like it did. And then you get the flip side as well. You get people like Travis Walton yeah, who has made kind of, I don't want to say a career out of it, but he embraces it. He goes to festivals, talks about his encounter and shares it where, you know, they've taken it full on. And back when I did a lot more UFO and abductee uh, interviews and research, I often found that it would have a profound impact on these uh, experiencers, if you will, mm-hmm. that oftentimes they'd become much more spiritual. They'd get involved with saving the environment and the planet. 
So oftentimes with UFOs, it can be a life altering encounter or experience. Yeah. And I could see why some people go down the route of, I'm going to dig as deep as I can to figure out what happened to me. Right, right. I mean, like, gosh, you know, you, uh, you know, I, it's hard to even tell the difference between a dramatic UFO encounter and like what people r- wrote about, you know, hundreds of years ago as a religious experience. I mean, that it would change your worldview, change how you thought, like, you know, it would have profound effects on the witness's life. So, I mean, it's like, I have a hard time, you know, if, excuse me, <clears throat> but if you read about, oh, oh I'm so sorry, <clears throat> cough, cough, my allergies, but uh, yeah, these stories, they have a very similarity between subjects, between I feel, religious experience, UFOs, Bigfoot, ghosts, the experience feels sort of the same, yet the projection or the display is just different. It really is, and again, this field can just spiderweb off into so many different directions that uh, every time, you know, I've been doing this nearly 30, over 30 years now. And I feel like I don't know much about the field at all. Right. (laughs) I could do this till the day I die at 190 years old and still feel like I have no idea what's going on. Right, right, right. And and I, I always kind of think I've kind of like reframed my thinking about this stuff, Chad, where I'm like, I'm never going to find an answer. There may not even really be an answer to this stuff. But what we, I bet, I bet a guy like you now is asking better questions than he was 20 years ago. And that's kind of what we can do, you know? Exactly. I I have better questions, better insight, but I learned long ago, like you just mentioned that for me, everyone who gets in the field, when you start out, you probably think as I did that, oh, this will be easy. I'll solve this case. I'll figure (laughs) out what's going on here. And for me, at least that didn't happen where early on, I figured out that I'm probably never going to explain these things if they're even explainable. So why not view it more as the adventure of it all right? and what it means and what these folklore stories mean to us as a a species and how they affect us. And I love marking their progress or how they morph over the years. But for me, the end question of solving it has really taken a backseat to the adventure of it all and the fun of it. Yep. Because I think a lot of people that I started out with that didn't make that transition, they burned out very quickly yep. because obviously nobody's discovered what Bigfoot may or may not be. Or, well, we could probably say UFOs now. Take that out of there because, you know, government coming forward saying, yeah, UFOs seem to be real. And that's another thing that amazes me right now is that in the 90s, when the X-Files TV show was on, mm-hmm. if the government would have come out and said UFOs were real, people would have lost their minds. <laughs> totally. It, the entire planet would have stood still. But now they do it and people are like, eh, oh, well. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's next? Yeah. When's the next Kardashians episode start? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Where, man, if that would have happened in the 90s, oh. the world would have ended. I, You know, I, I, I think so. It is kind of one of those things where a lot of like researchers are like, oh, well, if they told us the truth about UFOs, the economic banking system would collapse. People wouldn't go to work. We're, you know, churches would close down. And what we found out is that people didn't even care, <laughs> except for guys like us, you know, but like the majority of people, like all my friends who aren't into this stuff, they're like, e- anyway, what's the score of the, uh, the Royals game? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> so it, it, <laughs> I, I was actually, I kind of thought that's what it, what it would be like, but I was actually surprised how little no one cared. <laughs> 
it was amazing. I was too. I thought I thought when they had the congressional hearings that people would take it seriously and be very interested in it, but it seemed like people just I don't I don't know what it is. I don't know if we're distracted or if so much has happened uh, pre and post COVID that people just kind of are desensitized to it right. all and just like, well, if they end the world, oh well, oh well. <laughs> Hopefully, I have a good meal before. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, um, before we wrap up, if you don't mind, can we? I feel like I would be um, missing an opportunity if I didn't get to talk the Beast of Bray Road with you because, as far as I know, this is. And, you know, Dogman is be kind of becoming a hip thing in uh, the cryptid world, I feel like, the last couple of years. But as far as I know, the most famous, well-documented case is the Beast of Bray Road. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? You're absolutely right. And there's probably outside of maybe John Keel and Mothman or, you know, Patterson with Bigfoot, there's no legend that is more heavily tied to one researcher than the Beast of Bray Road and Linda Godfrey. Yep. And Linda Godfrey, who just recently passed, if your listeners aren't familiar she was or aren't aware. Yeah, she um, she was a newspaper reporter down in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, which is in the southeastern portion of the state. And she started receiving reports of people traveling down a small stretch of road called Bray Road. It's about four miles long in the countryside. And for a lack of a better term, they told her that they were seeing a werewolf. And she took them seriously. And Linda had this really open personality where people just felt comfortable and telling her things. She had this unassuming presence that made people feel comfortable. So she started collecting all these reports. And then she went to the local DNR, the Department of Natural Resources officer. And like out of a you know supernatural movie, all of a sudden the guy just pulled out a folder, a thick manila folder on the front, it was huge letters. It was labeled werewolf. Wow. And you know, something like out of a, again, the X-Files, you walk right. in and they, Oh, you want the werewolf file. <laughs> I love it. So she started compiling all these stories and they started growing. And then she put them into the, the beast of Bray road book. And then it just really exploded. I mean, I remember uh, I met Linda before her first book came out. Um, 20, 20 years ago. And she had uh, just started researching the beast. She loved it so much. Her license plate said like Bray beast or beast Bray on them or personalized plates. And we were driving and I remember her saying to me, I got to get rid of these plates. (laughs) I said, why is that Linda? She said, well, back when I was researching it, nobody knew what it was, but now I'm driving on the interstate. People are honking and pointing and (laughs) they all know the beast of Bray Uh road. And once Linda's book came out, you know, that's when the dog man or werewolf phenomena really exploded so much. So that just, you know, 10 days ago, I got back from Texas. I was down at Josh Turner's amazing dog man conference in Texas uh, that he put together of people interested in the dog man werewolf phenomenon. But it really has exploded. And I would say that it's almost getting up there to Bigfoot type levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, in, in Bray is just, you know, it's such an important case in the whole dogman world. And I was able to, I was lucky enough to go with my friend Eric in uh, May. We went and kind of did, their, they had like a Beast of Bray Road Day, a small little festival at the library. But then we went to do the Hayrack ride 
on the property right by where the you know the original encounters were and the guy who owns the the farm and the land like they have quite a few pictures and he you know they claim to see orbs of light there on the property and the the dogman creature so like it seems like the whatever you know was there is still there and you know people are still witnessing this thing around there i don't know if how much or how frequently but it didn't seem to like fully end like i think a lot of people thought the owner and i don't want to speak for lee but he believes there's a portal in the area yeah. or on his land where these things are coming in and out of where He'll have carcasses just disappear where he has trail cams on them. So the weirdness, yeah, it's still happening, even though Bray Road is starting to become more and more developed, where all of a sudden you're losing some of the fields and Mm -hmm. the cornfields because homes are being built on the road. So 20 years ago, it was a little different than it is today. But yeah, these sightings are are still occurring, so much so that uh, a gentleman who lives on the road put this giant 10 foot carved big uh, dogman statue out there. And it's like in chains, yeah. like it's grounded. <laughs> like he's holding this thing back from you. And, yep. and Elkhorn has done practically nothing to promote the legend. I you know it's not Roswell. It's not point pleasant Mothman. It's none of band meter. None of that. They really just haven't embraced it at all. Yeah. And, and I actually found that kind of shocking while, while the, um, you know, the little, you know, they, they gave, they basically had like a two hour event at the library and I went to, and they had a food truck there and stuff. And like, you can see that some people are kind of making an honest effort to promote this and make it kind of the mascot of the town. But to me, it seems like a no brainer, like, you know, how Van Meter embraces the visitor or like you said, Roswell, you would think like they would embrace this piece of folklore. Cause it's actually like, if you're into this stuff, everyone knows about the beast of Bray road. It's kind of a big deal. You know, I'd say out of all the questions or comments I receive about Wisconsin legends, it by far it's Bray road. Yeah. That's what people want to know about. That's what they want to hear about. And interestingly, Linda's passing has only, skyrocketed the the interest in the legend as well and it seems like it just no end in sight that people want to know how to get there should they be cautious do they need to be armed that type of thing right so yeah bray road is uh one of the most fascinating and if any of your listeners do not have linda's first book the beast of bray road i highly recommend it because Mm -hmm. a lot of her newer or stuff that followed were more uh, compendiums of all sorts of legends right. of monsters right. of Bigfoot, where this was specifically Bray Road. Like, if you want a deep dive, you'll get it there. Yep, it is. It is truly. I I had that book as well, and I think um, even the Small Town Monsters um, production, you know, uh, Seth Breedlove stuff. I think they did a Beast of Bray Road, a little documentary that I think is pretty good. And yeah, it's just a wonderful case and it's so fun and it's just really interesting. It's another one of those weird Wisconsin tales. And I think, I think Wisconsin, if you are like, you know, if, if you're one of those legend trippers and you like to plan like little vacations, like I do around, you know, states that have a bunch of weird stuff, you could do almost no better than Wisconsin. In fact, I feel like Anyone who's into Fortiana and High Strangest, I think like Wisconsin is a place you need to go for five to six days. Have Chad's book, 
the Wisconsin Road to Mysterious Creatures. Because truly, I I kept this book in my backpack the entire time I was in Wisconsin last <laughs> last summer, and it really was so helpful and like kind of helped me plan my little trip. And Chad, I just think you're an absolute gem. I have one more question before I uh, let let you go, but so you and I are staying in in a house together during the conference and um in Van Meter in, you know, later this month on September, uh, September 30th, friends, I will, you know, put a link down where you can get tickets and that stuff. If you want to see Chad and I, but Chad, I I just want to know as a Midwest guy, it's important that I don't come empty handed. So what kind of snacks and refreshments can I bring for the house? Great question. (laughs) All the speakers, we've kind of Airbnb'd it the last few times because after the conference, uh, after all the crowds are gone, the speakers, that's my favorite part is sitting around swapping stories and legends. Yep. But this year, the B and B is an old converted church basement. Oh yeah. So I recommend you bring some holy water <laughs> to save us and maybe some wine that you can turn into the, the blood of Christ uh, uh, with you because I haven't talked to the owners, but I have a sneaking suspicion. There's some ghost stories from this, this old church basement that we're going to be inhabiting. So oh. yeah, definitely some, some wine and some holy water would be my recommendations. Um, and being that it's in, in Iowa, something corn based as well. Popcorn, corn on the cob. Done. Yeah. Done. And I'm going to bring my spear box. It seems like we'll, we'll maybe we'll have to do a little investigation in that basement. I think. Yeah. We'll see how many of us even make it out of there alive. Probably none of us. well we had a good run we had a good run chad lewis my man thank you so much for giving me your time i have been a fan of yours for a very long time and when i got to i i I, right after you did the walking tour i walked right up to you and just talked your ear off because i was so excited to meet you and you signed my book and i was so thrilled like really like i just think the world of you and your research to me is so damn important so it's been a really thrill a real big thrill for me to have you on my man Thank you, and keep an eye out. I'm gonna, buddy. I'm gonna. Everyone, this has been Chad Lewis. I am going to put a link in the show notes of where you can buy his books, where you can get tickets for the Van Meter Festival, and all things Chad Lewis will be in the show notes. Chad, thank you so much, my brother. I really appreciate it, buddy. And I can't wait to see you in a couple weeks. Chad? Okay. Yeah, it kind of froze up. Sorry. (laughs) No problem. No, I heard it. I heard it. Okay. Okay, buddy. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you, man. Yeah, and I'll see you again in a couple weeks. All right, Chad. Take care, bud. All right. Let me know when uh, this airs. I'll help promote it on my end. That sounds great. That sounds great. Thank you, everyone. This has been High Strangers. Have a great rest of your week. Bye-bye. Oh, Chad, thank you so much. Thank you. This is... Gosh, what an hour went by like nothing. I know, I know. It's it, That's like the trickiest part for me is to keep this like, you know, 60 to 70 minutes because a guy like you, I'm like, oh my gosh, I could talk for seven hours, <laughs> you know, but right. uh, try to leave the audience one more. Um, do you mind staying on just for one second while it finishes uh, uploading? It just takes like a minute of or course. two sometimes. Yeah.